Father, help us in these moments together as we look at Jesus' teaching of what it looks like to be his disciple and ultimately what it will look like when Jesus takes over. Help us, Father, to see ourselves where we're at in these texts, where we need to rely on you for strength to change and transform, where we need to be awakened where we're blind and sleeping and apathetic. Awaken our hearts. May these moments not just be informational, but transformational. Help us, please. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to start with Matthew 5 starting in verse 1. And this, the text will come up on the screen, but let me set up the text quickly. We're going to look at three headings. The king has come, life in the kingdom, and power for living. The king has come, life in the kingdom, and the power for living. And so, Jesus is king. He is not only the creator of all that we experience as far as reality is concerned. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Not only is he the creator, but he's the king. And the king humbled himself to take on the form of a servant, and he entered into our brokenness. So the grand or great architect and king of the universe has come as and into his own creation. He came as what he created and into his own creation historically about 2,000 years ago. Lived in obscurity for about 30 years and you remember he was baptized by his cousin John the Baptist in the Jordan River and as he comes up out of the water, God the Spirit in the form of a dove comes down and not only rests upon him, but remains on him. And he is empowered for ministry. You need to think about that. Jesus didn't start doing ministry until he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. He lived a normal human life as a man, just like us, mankind, okay? And when the Holy Spirit came upon him at, bapt at baptism, he was anointed and empowered for ministry. And so we could say, Jesus didn't do miracles until he was anointed by the Spirit because he didn't do miracles by his own godness. He humbled himself and he didn't cease to be God, but he ceased to act in his own attributes continuously as God. He humbled himself. And so God the Holy Spirit was the power behind Jesus' ministry. And as soon as he was anointed, he went out into the desert by the prompting of the Holy Spirit to be tempted in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights by the devil. And you remember, victorious, he emerges and he begins to call his disciples to himself. And in Matthew 4... He not only begins to call disciples to himself, but he begins to preach. Did you know that Jesus was a preacher? He was a teacher. He was a healer. And so, Matthew 4, 17, Jesus began to preach, assuming before this, Jesus did not preach. He began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or has come near. Now you need to think about that. The reason the kingdom of heaven has come near or is at hand because the king is here. Where the king is, the kingdom is. And Jesus is going to begin in this time period to show his rule and reign as king of the universe over nature, over evil spirits, over disease, over death itself, over sin. He has authority as king. And he begins to tell anyone who will listen, repent, turn, turn from trusting in yourself, turn from trusting in the religious system of your day, the corrupt Judaism of Jesus' day, and turn to me, turn. And he begins to call 
disciples to himself. Matthew 4, 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus begins his teaching, preaching ministry while healing and performing miracles and exorcisms. What will happen when the king comes? Well, this is an appetizer, a preview. What happens when Jesus comes to rule and reign in this earth, in a new earth? Well, we get a preview of it in this text. Now, some of you may not believe this is historically accurate. Some of you may not believe that Jesus actually walked the earth, that he was who he claimed to be, that he did actual miracles. But if you're of that position, I want you to just think about this. Listen to what I'm about to read from Matthew's account and imagine a world that Matthew describes that Jesus rules over. Listen to this. This is Matthew 4, 23 to 25. He went through all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel the king of the kingdom and healing, listen, every disease and every affliction among the people. Every disease, every affliction, cancer, heart disease, autoimmune diseases, STDs, birth defects, mental illnesses, seizures, blindness, deafness, arthritis, paralytics, and on and on and on. Every disease and every affliction be gone, and it flees because the king has authority over all sickness and affliction, and it must listen to him. When Jesus rules and reigns, he can command sickness to be gone in all of its ugliness. He rules over disease. Verse 24, so his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him, listen, all the sick, all of them. Those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea. And rightfully so. No one's ever seen anything like this. He commands evil spirits, be gone, and they flee. He commands disease, be gone, and it is gone. He teaches with such profound wisdom that in John we hear, no one ever spoke like this man. What kind of teaching is this with authority? You've heard it been said, but I say, when the king comes to rule. So this is now what we know as life in the kingdom. So the king has come. What happens when the king comes? He banishes all of what we know as darkness. It's a preview, though, because we know that darkness still exists. People are still possessed by demons. People are still blind and they're naked and needing clothes and they need fed. But Jesus gave us a preview of what it will look like when he comes back to take over. And he then tells his disciples, Matthew 5, 1 to 12, seeing the crowds. So the crowds are now following him. Massive crowds. He's healed them. He's cast out demons, and he's got these huge crowds following him. And so he goes up onto a mountain, reminiscent of Moses, going up onto Mount Sinai to receive the law. And he comes up as a greater than Moses, and he begins to tell what his kingdom will be like, what his rule will be like, what his people will be like. Now, the Sermon on the Mount, this beginning in Matthew 5, 1 to 12, is probably uh, highlights of a greater teaching, even, even 5 through 7. It's highlights because Luke has a similar account, and he emphasizes different things, but similar. And so 
most all scholars believe this is a summarized account of what Jesus actually taught on the mountain. He opens up by seeing the crowds and he sits down. Now, common in this day is when rabbis were to teach, they sit down to teach. You remember when he went into uh, the synagogue and the scroll was handed to him and he opened up to the place where it spoke about him? He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. So, it was common for a rabbi to sit down when he teaches. And so he sits down and he assumes the position of a teacher and his disciples come to him. Now, a quick distinction. Disciples are ones who have actually committed to Jesus. Like Andrew and Peter, brothers who are fishermen, and James and John, brothers who were also fishermen. He calls them, follow me, they're his disciples. But there's also massive crowds following him. And so these may not be committed, but they're astounded by the miracles, by the healings, by the evil spirits fleeing. And so they want to hear and see, what, what is this? But his disciples come to him. We are disciples. Okay? So in one sense, yes, this was spoken to those disciples. But we, as descendants of those disciples... We also need to hear this. They came to him. And so in one sense, I want you to imagine yourself coming to Jesus and him saying, this is what my people look like and live like. This is what my disciples will be like. He sits down, he opens up his mouth, and he teaches, saying, Blessed. Now, blessed means happy. You could translate it that way, but it's deeper than happy. It's more than that. It means fortunate or a state of being in God's favor, His grace. You could think of it like this. It means soul contentedness. How many of you are there? That's the question we need to ask. Because Jesus is going to begin to tell us, blessed, 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 blessed. What does that mean? Soul contentedness in the place of God's favor. Happy. I wonder if any of you are in that place of blessedness. Or are you in a place of anxiety and frustration and disappointment? Jesus is going to tell us, as the king who rules all reality, this is how you can be in this place of blessedness. He's giving us insights into what we're all looking for. Do you realize that? Every human heart is longing for what's wrapped up in this word, blessedness. And the ruler of the universe is now coming and saying, here it is. Here it is. Some of you um, know that the world says you'll be happy in these ways. If you get newer, bigger, faster, better, different, and more. Then I'll be happy. Then you'll be happy, they tell us. Yet, when we do get newer, bigger, faster, better, different, and more, we're still not satisfied. Have you noticed that? You, I need a new. You get the new, and you're still you. Amen or no? I need a new. And so you go and you get it and you get a five minute high and then all of a sudden you're still you. Hmm. It's a lie. Your experience tells you this. Reality is lining up with what I just said. Now, King's Kaleidoscope is a fantastic band. Uh, I highly recommend any of their albums. Um, they wrote a song that is gets at this, this kind of worldly unsatisfaction. And I'm going to read you some of the lyrics. It's called Sabotage. How many of you like that song? Sabotage slash home. You like that song? Listen to this. If this is living, then I am finally finding out life's misleading. If this is freedom, then I'm not sure if I want it now. I have reached the ceiling. If this is success, well, then I should have expected less. I could keep on dreaming. Because if I'm honest, 
I'm beginning to have my doubts. What do I believe in? This is a very soul-searching song. I can't escape this sabotage, taking what I want, but slowly I'm discovering exactly what is wrong. I pour myself out for myself. Such a selfish fool when all I want is you. Hmm. That's insightful. That's honest. This isn't living. I'm so defeated and uninspired. Life's deceiving. This isn't freedom. I never stop, always running tired. I just keep on reaching. This isn't success. I'm just a jumble of work and stress, and I'm always reeling. I'm beginning to have my doubts. What do I believe in? I can't escape this sabotage, taking what I want. But I'm slowly discovering exactly what is wrong. I pour myself out for myself, such a selfish fool, when all I want is you. All I want is you. Hmm. Anyone feel like that? Thank you. Yeah, I feel like that pretty often, if I'm honest. And Jesus is inviting us to more, but not the more that the world offers, the real, the substance, not the facade, not the fake, not the veneer, not the hollow, but the real. And I just, I pray to God that he would open our eyes in these moments. Please, please. Blessed, soul contented are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit means this, that you know that you have nothing spiritually to offer to God. you got nothing. Shane and Shane have an album called Bring Your Nothing. And so you show up to God, and he says, what have you got for me? I'm a beggar. I've got nothing Nothing in my hands I bring. Only to the cross I cling. We are spiritual beggars with nothing. Do you know what it's like to need? You ever scrape for change? You're like, I got nothing. And you're looking for quarters. Like, imagine being in that place and not finding anything. Spiritually, that's where we all need to be if we're going to come to God. You absolutely, you have nothing. In fact, not only do you have nothing, like zero, now you're negative. You're in debt. Demerit. Below poverty. You're in debt. Jesus told that parable about a man owing far more than he could ever pay. And the king forgave him. And he went out and found a man who owed him $5. And he choked the man and he threw him into debtor's prison. And the king found out and said, how could you do this? I, I forgave you an unpayable debt. And you couldn't even forgive this small debt? You see, God in Christ, if you're in Christ, has forgiven you an unpayable debt. And listen, if you, if you feel like you got some merit to offer God, you can't be blessed. You can't be this soul contentedness that Jesus offers. You must recognize, and I would say pray fervently until he lets you feel it. Not just intellectually, yeah, I, I believe that. No, feel it. Feel your poverty spiritually. And then you'll know Jesus' riches. When you feel how indebted you are, and I mean feel it, then you will be so thankful for the riches that have been given to you, for the righteousness that is alien but now yours. Nothing that you could accomplish but what he accomplished for you. And, and you see that at, at the very beginning of Jesus' teaching, so think about it, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How is it at hand? The king is here. He begins to teach what his kingdom will look like. And the first 
thing that he preaches is the gospel. You have to be spiritually poor. And what will happen? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's not those who earn their right to be in the kingdom. It's those who know they absolutely should not be there. They're beggars. And they come to him for the bread of life. If you have a tendency to be self-righteous, you struggle with judging people, thinking of yourself higher than others, looking down on others, that is a mark that you may not be poor in spirit. You may not be poor in spirit. Because if you realize and really sense your poverty of spirit, you can't be those things. Because you realize how much of a mess you are and how much you have been given. And so how can I judge the ones who fall? I know in my heart I'm just like them all. Didn't we just sing that? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom is a kingdom of grace. It's a kingdom of theological term, imputation. It just means to credit in place of another. If we're going to be in the kingdom, you need a righteousness that's not yours. And there's only one who has achieved full righteousness to God's satisfaction. His name is Jesus, the king himself. So Jesus is really pointing to himself in this blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And here I am. I am not poor in spirit. And I am willing to give of my own righteousness to you. Yours will be the kingdom of heaven. This is good news, guys. Because how much is enough? I mean, how hard do you have to work? How righteous do you have to be? Well, Jesus says, you just got to be poor and needy. So listen, it's those who know that they're in trouble that are actually not in trouble. It's fantastic. It's good news. It's those who think they're doing awesome. You're in the danger zone. You're in peril. Jesus said to the religious elites in Matthew 21, verse 31, he said, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom ahead of you. How can that be? Because they realize that they have nothing to commend themselves to God. And theirs is the kingdom of heaven when they rely on him and his riches, his righteousness. Isn't that good news? So we have good news to tell anyone and everyone. There's no one outside the reaches of God's grace because you have to need his grace in order to get it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now Jesus is not calling his people to be continually mournful. Or to be like monastic mutilators of flesh. Like that was a real thing in the first few centuries. The hermits that would go out into the desert and create spikes and, and put it on a belt and then tighten the belt and punish themselves. And I mean, that's just weird, but that was real. And so always mournful, always downcast, always. That's not what this means. What this means is. Mourning over your own sin. You're, you are able to see your own sin and you're like, this is horrible. Anyone, anyone ever been there? I'm not saying you're there all the time, but you ever get a glimpse of how ugly your sin is and all of a sudden you just, it crushes you. It's like a, a, a backpack of cinder blocks and you're just weighed down, you mourn. And you're like, oh God. And, and, and amazingly, he says, blessed when that happens. Because you're recognizing in those moments your need for him. And the future hope is that it will not always be so. Listen, guys, we're going to be free from our sin one day. Those in Christ will be finally and fully righteous. No longer even able to be tempted. I can't wait for that day. 
You know what it's like when the draw of temptation is on you and the fight begins. At least I hope the fight begins. And you feel the power of sin within you, the indwelling sin that Romans 7 talks about. It's not me who does it, but sin that dwells in me, living in me. And you feel that power of sin. And it gravitates towards its object. And you fight. And you mourn that you're even able to be tempted sometimes, right? Now, praise God, temptation is not sin. And you need to be able to distinguish between the two. However, imagine never being tempted again. We will be comforted. Mourning over indwelling sin in us and in others. And so when someone else's sin pops up, and if you're around other people ever, their sin's going to pop up. Husband, wife, children, co-workers, neighbors. Your response is not to feel self-righteous in that moment. Why can't you just get it together? We often have a tendency to put others down and that pulls us up, at least in our own minds. Rather, it should cause us to mourn when we see the sins of others. Not rejoice, not judge, mourn. And when that happens, listen, blessed, blessed. 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul writes, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Okay? Without regret. So, so there's a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. There's a mourning or a grief that can be without regret. You grieve over your sin. You recognize that you're saved. You recognize that Jesus paid for it. You recognize that you're righteous in him. That's called preaching the gospel to yourself. And then you don't have to live in this regret. Because you're free. Whereas worldly grief produces death. That's 2 Corinthians 7.10. God comforts us in this verse. The king, he says, it will not always be so. You will be comforted. You can be comforted in the now by reminding yourself that this is not how it's always going to be. Not in me and not in others. And so here's a, here's a helpful um, thing for you when others' sins pop up in your life. Can you, by grace, say to yourself, that's not who you're going to be. Like, who you are right now, your attitude, your actions, your demeanor, your sin, you're not going to be that. You can encourage yourself that way. Yes, it's mournful when other sin shows up in your life. But you can say to yourself, if they're a Christian, God's going to finish what he started in you. And you can be encouraged. Or how about when you are mourning, God shows up and comforts you. Through others, maybe. Through your own reading. Through a sermon. Through a friend. And then listen to 1 Corinthians uh, one, three to four. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Have you ever thought about God as being the God of all comfort? That's our God. Who comforts us in all our affliction, all of them, so that, here's the reason why he comforts us, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's pretty profound. What that means is God will allow affliction in your life. And you mourn. And you're hurting. And then He comforts you. Sometimes through other Christians. Sometimes through something you read. Sometimes through something you heard. He comforts you. And then He brings other people directly in your path with that same issue. And all of a sudden you know, oh wait. I'm supposed to comfort you with the comfort which I received. That ever happened to anyone? And you're like, oh, I, I see at least a glimpse of why maybe that happened to me. Now in the future, here I am. Very purposeful of God like that. 
We comfort others with the comfort which we have received. And our hope is Revelation 21, 3 to 4. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. I can't wait. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. How do you encourage yourself when you're mourning? You remember that it's going to pass away. It's going to pass away. For the former things have passed away. So now we're in them, but in the future, they'll be the former things. Can you grab on to that kind of hope in those moments and be contented in soul, blessed, happy? I mean, I don't know how non-Christians do it. Well, I kind of get it a little bit. They hope in idols. That's all they have. If you don't have the true God to go at when you're mourning and suffering and hurting and afflicted, you got to go at something to worship. And so we can understand maybe a little bit why people are addicted. Because that's all they have if they don't have God. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, the meek means this. Literally, the Greek, it means gentle. And so, gentle is more than gentle, though. It means you're humble. So, meek is gentleness with humility. And remember what Shailen helped us with. If you think meekness is weakness, try being meek for a week. Because meekness is very, very difficult in and of yourself. By the Spirit, you can do it. But here's what it means. It's a gentleness in relation to how we treat others. So are you harsh with others? Are you roughshod with others? Do you steamroll over people? Do you stiff arm people? Or are you gentle and humble? Like Paul says to his church, we were gentle among you like a mother with a newborn baby. Talk about gentleness. I mean, how gentle are you with a newborn? Like holding that neck, being very careful to feed it. You pass it off with such delicacy and care. And Jesus is saying, blessed are those kind of people. Now, I'm not going to take a poll to see how many of you are those kind of people or how many of you think those kind of people are weak. But God, Jesus, the king, says that these people are going to inherit the earth. Now, that's amazing because in our culture, it's those who grab and step on people and climb and push and get out of my way. Those are the people who we think inherit the earth. But the king says... No, the meek will inherit the earth. So how can this be? Well, one, you have to trust that what Jesus said is true. And here's how you live it out. Well, he tells us uh, by Peter in verse, uh, 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So, so it's able to say, I will be meek, I will be gentle, I will not steamroll people, stiff-arm people, get out of my way, step on people for your ends. In other words, you're consuming people. Rather, you'll be gentle with people. You'll be humble with people. You'll be gracious with people. You'll be like a newborn baby with people. Knowing that in due time, God will lift you up. You will inherit the earth. And ultimately, we are the inheritors of the universe We're co-heirs with Christ. All that is His will be ours. He delights to share it with us as a co-heir. You remember the parable? You be over this many cities. You be over this many cities. I think there's some truth to that. Ruling and reigning under King Jesus. Inheriting the earth. Without sin. So, so the curse extracted from all creation, yours. Meek, inheriting the earth. 
Jesus probably got this from Psalm 37:11. The meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Delight themselves in abundant peace. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. <laughs> the other night, I woke up in the middle of the night. And you know how sometimes your nose gets stuffed up and you got to breathe through your mouth? I woke up, my mouth was drier than I can ever remember it being. It was so dry, I could feel the taste buds on my tongue. <clears throat> your mouth ever been that dry? It makes me want to cough and like choke right now as I think about it. Like, Give me a drink, man. And so I went out into the kitchen and I took a drink and thirst. Have you ever been that thirsty where your mouth is just completely dry and there's no moisture and you can literally touch the bumps on your tongue? Have you ever been so hungry that, you know, if Google gave it a, a, a two on the five stars, you eat it and you're like, this is a five. This is fantastic. You ever been that hungry? Where what normally you'd be like, this is, you're, you're that hungry. You're like, this is the best powdered mac and cheese ever. <laughs> this is fantastic. I mean, you're hungry. This is, this is fantastic. Okay, you're hungering and thirsting for what? For righteousness. Have you ever felt that? So, so your sin shows up, or someone else's sin shows up, or you look at, at the vast brokenness of the world, and you long for righteousness to rule and reign, not only in your heart and in others' hearts, but across the landscape, across the globe. You look at people living without running water and being mistreated by governments, stuck. And you're like, why can't righteousness rule in that country, in that village? You hear about women abused and children abused, and you're like, why can't righteousness rule and reign here? And you hunger and you thirst for it. Anyone ever been there? Like, you want it in your heart because it's not. You long to be righteous, and you can't accomplish it. And thus, the mourning and the poverty of spirit. Okay, we're building on one another here. But then you look out at the brokenness of the world and you say, please. What does that sound like in a prayer form? It sounds like the last verse of Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Take over. A friend was telling me the other night that his buddy's daughter got shot in New Ken and killed and she was his daughter's age, you know, late teens. And, and I just said to him, bro, that, that heavy, it's heavy on me. I feel that. And I long for Jesus to come back and clean this all up. Do you know what I'm talking about? That's the hungering and the thirsting for righteousness. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Take over. Rule and reign. Kick the darkness out. Banish it for good. Lake of fire, let's go. And we shall inherit the earth. What will happen to those who are what I just described? Listen, they will be satisfied. Brothers and sisters, there's a day coming in hope when this will be a reality. Righteousness will be inside of you and inside of everyone else in a righteous universe. We don't even have a category for that. We, all we know is what that's not. We have no clue what that is. <laughs> but what we do know is that we will be satisfied one day. Now it's obvious that Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, I'll give them living water. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never be hungry. The water that I give you, John 4, to the woman at the well, will be like a spring of water welling up to eternal life. We have a great promise that one day we will be satisfied, those of us who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So it does get heavy, but we have to be able to look forward in hope. We have to. 
Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, if you've received mercy, what is mercy? Mercy is not getting what you deserve, right? Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And so if you're a merciful person, you are always giving people the benefit of the doubt. You're giving people Mercy. Why? Because you've been shown a massive amount of mercy, if you realize it. So listen, the merciful who are blessed are those who understand the, the massiveness of the mercy they've received. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. But listen, in order to be merciful, you must understand how merciful Jesus has been to you. How merciful God the Father has been to you. How merciful the Holy Spirit has been to you. He has not given you what your sins deserve. Instead, He offers you favor and grace and forgiveness. And if you realize how much mercy you've received, you will be able to extend that same mercy. You prove you've experienced the mercy of God by the mercy you show others in their mess. So does God call us to mess? Absolutely. How do we endure that? How can we be merciful in others' messes? Well, you realize how merciful Jesus has been to you. God the Father's been to you. The Holy Spirit's been to you in the middle of your mess. That's how. And blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I love I love this verse 8 here. Pure in heart means this. Your heart's pure. Like, remember Jesus would cast out unclean spirits? Clean spirit. Pure. Not contaminated. Pure. Pure in heart. Now listen, this is something that is worth fighting for, my friends. This is worth fighting for. Purity. Not just sexually, but in the way you think about everything. Your, your heart is the motives. It's the central control center of your being. And so you have purity pulsing through you. Your motives are pure. And you act it out. It's from the inside out. Just like sin is from the inside out, it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, but what comes out of him. For out of the heart flow the issues of life, when the same way, when you get a regenerate heart and God continues to purify you, continues, it's a process, it flows out. It flows out. Kevin DeYoung told a story um, about jogging in his neighborhood, and there was a woman who was immodestly dressed, and she was walk, washing her car, and he had the fight that many of us know that fight. And you know what he, he said that he did in that moment? He kept repeating to himself in a prayer, I want to see God. I want to see God. I want to see God. How do you fight purity? Well, you, you remind yourself of the benefit. I will get to see God. Not just future seeing him, but you experience him now. His power, his presence his nearness. You get to see him in ways that you wouldn't otherwise. I don't know how else to read that. The pure in heart see God in ways that you can't otherwise. You get to see more of him. Blessed are the pure in heart. Now this is not something that we work up and then present to God and say, can I see you because I'm pure? No, it's something that God works in us as a result of the Holy Spirit living in us. It's a process and it's a progress. Do you hear me? It's a process and a progress. So don't get super discouraged unless you're trying to live out this one. <laughs> if you're not there yet, fight. Fight. Keep fighting. Don't stop. Don't give in. God will win. So remind yourself of that when you fall. God will win. Not I'll do better next time, I promise. No, God will 
win. That's how you fight. And you remind yourself in that moment of temptation, I want to see God. I want to see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. Nine, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, let's take that one from the back first and then talk about peacemaking. Do you ever hear the phrase like father, like son? Like mother, like daughter? It's usually in negative ways. Well, this is that in the positive. Our father is a peacemaker, capital P. He has extended his invitation for peace with him to anyone who will bow the knee. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. But he offers that now. Peace with God. And listen, he is the one who not only created the terms for peace, but then fulfilled the terms for peace. It's going to cost sacrifice, on an infinite level. I'm in trouble. I'll take care of it. And so when we are peacemakers, so, so listen to me, if you're a lover of conflict, if you like thrive off of tension, if you thrive off of fights and debates and tension and strife, if you're that person, you're not the peacemaker. If you're the divisive person, that's, that's not the peacemaker. No wonder you're unhappy. No wonder you don't have soul contentment. You're not living like your father if you're a Christian. Like father, like son, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, sons and daughters of God. Why? Because he is the ultimate peacemaker. Are you willing, listen, to forgive as you've been forgiven? Are you willing to make peace? Are you willing to absorb the debt that someone owes you at a great cost to yourself? Because listen, that's what God did. At great cost to himself, he absorbed the debt that we owed him, and he made peace. It's going to hurt. So don't expect it to just be, I forgive you. It's all good. No, you have to absorb it, and it's going to hurt, and it's going to take a lot of time to work out. But blessed are the peacemakers. That's what you got to remember. Why? Because I'm being like my heavenly father right now. Like father, like son, like father, like daughter. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Persecution is inevitable as we live out our faith. Now, in other parts of the world, it's more intense than in other parts of the world. In our world right now, currently, it's not that intense. I mean our nation, the, the United States of America. Like, we get made fun of, we get ostracized, we get thought of as intellectual fools. Eddie and I were in New York last weekend, and we were doing the Uber. You ever do an Uber? Pretty sweet. You just hit the app, and boom, they're right there. Hey. So, so Eddie and I are in an Uber with another pastor, another Acts 29 pastor in Gibsonia, Scott. And uh, Jewish man, he begins to talk to us about what we're doing in New York City. Well, we're, we're here for a pastor's conference. And guess what? All three of us are pastors. So what do you think about God and the Bible? And, and so this man um, was an unbeliever. And when we got to the root of why he was an unbeliever, he said, uh, you know, if you look statistically around the world, Christians are mostly uneducated and people in poverty. And he said, I think it's a matter of mis miseducation. I'm not quoting Lauren Hill. I'm just it's 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 a matter of them not being educated enough. That's why. And and you know what I said to the man? Um, and this was God's grace. I said, you know, uh, the Bible says really clearly that uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. I said, poor people know what it is to need. And you can't come to God unless you need him. And so I think there's a direct correlation between being poor in spirit and actually being in poverty because you understand need. And so when God comes and says, you need me, they already know what need is like. And then they come to him and they are saved. Now, that was one of the answers. We gave him a lot of answers. 
And we, we, we want heritage. Hey, you're Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. The apostles were Jewish. There's some heritage there. You should read it. And then we got to the place where after all these arguments, it was like, hey, have you ever read the Bible? No. You should at least try to read it, brother. And so we encouraged them. That, that was what we left them with. You should, you should try to read it. Start to read the Bible. But see, we, by implication, were part of that uneducated, unintellectual, you guys are fools. Like, he didn't say it outwardly, but we were implied. Okay, are you willing to have the world see you like that and not be offended? Like Paul says, we're fools for Christ. The preaching of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. But to those who are called, those who are being saved, it's the power of God unto salvation. And so, yeah, we might get pushed to the corner, and we might get ostracized, and we might be seen as fools and unintellectuals, and that's the persecution we experience. If you're in the Middle East and you're in a Muslim-dominated country, you might get killed. You might get your head cut off on video and posted on YouTube. That's persecution. But amazingly, Jesus says, blessed are you. <laughs> blessed are you when you're persecuted. Why? For righteousness' sake. That means when you're living out your Christianity, you've done this at work. I know you have. I pray you have. You've not joined the conversation or you were in that awkward place where you're like, oh, this is so weird right now. You ever feel that? Like all your coworkers are rejoicing in some kind of iniquity, and all of a sudden you're the, you're the weirdo. And you just feel awkward, and usually at that point I'm just like, <laughs> I kind of sneak out. That's part of my sin is because if I'm uncomfortable, I tend to just leave, okay? I need to stay and confront and slap and start um, doing leg sweeps and hip throws. And I'm kidding. I'm kidding, Okay. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. No, what you do in those moments is you identify with their sin because you're a sinner. But listen, you know what even the unintentional persecution feels like because you feel what Peter said, strangers and aliens, sojourners. You're like, I feel that. I don't belong here. You ever feel that? I don't belong here. And in some places of the world, you're no longer going to belong there because you're going to be dead. Now, I pray. I'm not the persecution guy. I'm not like, bring it on. Burn us at the stake. It'll be awesome. Some people are like that. I'm not looking forward to that. Okay? If God calls us to that, I pray he gives us the grace to endure. And how are we going to endure? Well, we're going to remember, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Though they kill us, we don't die. Like, there is not even a millisecond in between death and life. Alive. Kingdom of heaven, ours. Blessed. And so, we live for Christ, and we do feel the strangers, aliens, sojourners. We feel it. Like, I don't belong here. We're in the world, but not of it. Blessed. When persecution comes. Blessed are you, verse 11, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So we're going to be slandered. We're going to be lied against. We're going to be straw mend and then knocked down. We're going to receive. So, so what I'm saying is expect it. Don't be like, what is going on? Jesus told us. Blessed are you, soul contentedness. Wow. When? When others revile you, when you're persecuted, when they utter all kinds of evil against you. And so how are you going to respond when someone pops off on Facebook? Are you going to let the world know how ticked you are? Or are you going to be meek? Are you going to identify with their sin and say, I'm just like you? Or are you going to go hard? Rejoice, verse 12, and be glad. Wow. Why? Because your reward is great in heaven. There's going to be countless millions of people who have received this kind of treatment in verses 11 and 12, and they're going to be wealthy beyond what we can imagine in heaven, whatever wealth looks like. 
I don't think it's going to be a bunch of Run DMC chains and 24-inch gold Dayton's on your Bentley. I don't think it's going to be that. But whatever it's going to be, these people are going to be wealthy beyond what we can imagine. And so can, here's what I want you to imagine. When I'm living this out, when I'm being persecuted, people are reviling against me, when they're, when they're uttering all kinds of evil falsely, they're lying on me, they're slandering me, will you think in that moment, treasure in heaven, keep it up. You're just depositing in my account. Because that's what Jesus is saying. Do I need to read it again? He said, rejoice and be glad. Like, we rejoice at New Year's Eve when the ball drops. We rejoice when our team wins. We rejoice when we just had a fantastic meal. Rejoice and be glad. Smile, happy, warm inside. When? Why? Because your reward is great in heaven. That's what you need to remember. Don't focus so much on the persecution in the moment. Focus on what it's doing for you. Will you slap me again? Another deposit. And then Jesus gives us a great identification. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All the prophets were treated in this way. Every one of them that spoke for God was ostracized and hated on and threatened and had to run for their lives. And John the Baptist, as the culmination of all the prophets himself, was beheaded. So we're identifying with the prophets, God's spokesmen, when these things are happening to us. You realize that. God values his people. And he promises us great reward when we're treated badly on his account. We're in good company when we're persecuted. One more minute, we're done. Where do we go or what do we do to get this kind of power for living? Remember I read you the lyrics of the sabotage earlier? It's actually sabotage slash home. It's two songs in one. And I'm going to read you the last part of that song now. As the, where do we get the power to live like this? Now as I cross this parted sea... Reminiscent of the Red Sea, parted, crossing. As I cross this parted sea, all I had is behind me. With my home now far in view. This is home right here with you. As I cross this parted sea, all I had is behind me. It's your old life. That's this bigger Better, faster, stronger, more. As you go across like the Israelites and you look back at Egypt, that's your sin and your old life and your old satisfactions. All you had in that life, B.C., before Christ, is behind you. With my home now far in view, where you used to live, where you used to find comfort, where you used to find joy, where you used to find satisfaction, the old you. This is home right here with you. Remember what Jesus said when praying to his father in John 17, verse 3? This is eternal life. That they know you and Jesus Christ, the one whom you've sent. Eternal life is to know God and Jesus and to be with him and to be present with him. Heaven's not heaven if God is not there. Remember that song by Shyland? Heaven's not heaven if God is not there. You have sabotaged the sea. Now you're walking here with me. This is home right here with you. I am home right here with you. Wade in the water. Wade in the water, children. Life is a restless maze. You are my hiding place. Life is a reckless haze. You are my endless grace. We find our power in God, 
by resting in Jesus. And he is present with us by his spirit. That's how we get the power to live like this. His spirit, him with us, present, enables this. Will you rely on him for this kind of power? Don't listen to all the fantastic dream works in Disney movies that says, look within and find the strength, find your inner power. No, look away from yourself and find the power. And it's not as far as inside you, but it's not yours. So let's together remember what Jesus has done for us. He has given us his body and blood. He has given us his righteousness as a gift. He has said, you're not righteous, but you need to be. I'll give you mine as a gift. And not only that, but I will take the debt that you owe and I will pay for it myself on the cross. Jesus received an infinite punishment. What would have taken an eternity to pour out on us? And so we we have a lot to celebrate, guys, as we say, Jesus, thank you, and celebrate that we can have this soul rest, not because of how we're doing or how we've done, but because of what Jesus did and what he said on the cross with his last words, it is finished. It's finished. The debt is paid. We are reconciled to God. And now we can go out and live this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Because we have a power that's not ours. Because of what Jesus has done. And he sent his spirit to empower us.